The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 25 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never knowingly disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So... Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their website, www.cshub.com. So the Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for cybersecurity professionals and global business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, in analysis in the cybersecurity space. And I know that a lot of people that listen to this show are actually going to the cybersecurity hub and reading the recaps because I just saw the numbers the other day, and they're great. The numbers are great. A lot of people are reading the recaps. Obviously, they enjoy them. And so, again, to check out the recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the cybersecurity hub at cshub.com. That's the cybersecurity hub at cshub.com. So another wonderful show last week with Adriana Sanford. I want to read a nice note that I received from James McClendon. He's the chief operating officer over at White Cloud Security about last week's show. It says, hi, George. I just listened to your show for the first time. Your guest was Adriana Sanford, and I learned more about blockchain and cryptocurrency than I have from any other source. I will be subscribing. Thank you for what you are doing to expose the cyber threat facing our great nation. Warm regards, Jim. So what a really, really nice letter. You know, I, get, I, get, I do get a lot of email, and I should read a lot more email on the air, and both the good stuff and the, and the criticisms as well. I think it's great uh, for the show. I do. I get tons of email to my Task Force 7 Radio email address. It's george.redis at taskforce7radio.com, as well as through social media, and I try to read them all. I, 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 do, I do read everything. It says sometimes it takes me a while to get to it, but I do read it. So thanks again for the note, Jam. I really appreciate you subscribing to the show and taking the time out to, to write that very nice message. I, I really do appreciate it. So, I, you know, I personally get a lot of satisfaction when people at, at all different levels of their careers get something out of the show, you know, and, and, and take away some value from becoming a regular listener. So it really makes my day. And I agree with Jim. I mean, I thought Adriana was great on the show, and she really does have a diverse knowledge base that makes her a very interesting guest. I, I heard that after the show, too, she appeared on CNN again to talk about blockchain to provide her subject matter opinion for their broadcast. That was a, a, another great show. So congratulations to her. You know, she's doing great. And we'll have her back again. But look, she was really great. If you missed it, you know, we had a great show last week. I urge you to find your favorite playback medium. Find Task Force 7 Radio. Subscribe to the show. It's always important that you subscribe, folks. It's very important. Look for the latest episode. That's episode number 24 named, Is Blockchain Going to Change the World? And Adriana Sanford appears on the second and third segments of the show. Good stuff. So you can now find TF7 Radio on your favorite podcast site. We're on a total of nine different playback mediums. I mean, nine. It's not hard to find us. With this includes iTunes.com, we're on Google Play, we're on TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com. We got the show's very own website at Task47Radio.com. And of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. You go to VoiceAmerica.com slash business, and you can find us in the, underneath the business section of Voice America. So, and you know what, folks? Now, now's a good time to thank the guys that make this show happen. The folks at Voice America that make this show happen. They've been just great with me since I st- started this show some 20 weeks ago. They're really a good bunch of people. Executive producer Randall Libero, pr- production manager Randy Jackman, and director of host services Jeff Gersel. 
and the whole Voice America team. They've been really great to me. There are quite a few people over there that make this show what it is today. Thank you for all you do, guys. You're, you're the best. Really, I do really appreciate everything you do to make Task Force 7 Radio the voice of cybersecurity. So, all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. So our presence out there is growing. We're everywhere. Can't miss it. Just Google us if you want to find us, Task Force 7 Radio. Check us out, folks. TF7 Radio, playback at your convenience, on the train, in the car, on your commute, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And please don't forget to subscribe. So and don't forget to follow us on uh, TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio. And on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. So this is a lot for one guy to come up with. It's only me right now on all these social media accounts. But, uh, you know, I do my best. I do my best to, to keep everything active and current. So I think we're doing okay. Uh, but most of all, it's a great way to interact with the audience on topics that are discussed on TF7 uh, episodes because a lot of people post about things we talk about here. So it's all great stuff. So we're going to have the Chief Information Officer of Turner, Peter Cronus, on the show tonight. And that's right, another C-suite cybersecurity executive joining us from one of the largest media companies in the world to give his thoughts on a variety of different cybersecurity topics. So, you know, I continue to get compliments from some of the other most respected people in the industry on the guests that we have on the show, and I'm really proud of that. And we're going to continue this trend of high-quality guests with a tremendous amount of credibility with this no-nonsense approach that we have here to cybersecurity. And I think it's very refreshing for our audience. So Peter has more than 15 years of experience using technology to manage cybersecurity risk for telecommunications, retail, media, entertainment, financial companies, IT service companies. He's got a variety of different experience that we're going to be able to tap into. And he's developed a web of proprietary and commercial security technologies that together have blocked billions of security threats and prevented you know, $100 million in fraud in some of these companies that he's worked in. So he has served on the front lines of the cybersecurity battle as the chief information security officer in several public and Fortune 500 companies. So really interesting, though, is Cronus is the author of a recent book on cybersecurity called The Cyber Conundrum. So this is a very thought-provoking book in the sense that it explores today's cybersecurity landscape and concludes that our current capabilities obviously are failing to solve the growing threat technology risk posed to our society and our economy, these things we talk about all the time on this show. But Cronus actually introduces the need for what he calls a moonshot to create momentum needed to address cybersecurity challenges. So that's what's really cool about the book, right? I mean, he explores other moonshots for inspiration in the book. He's chronicling the the space race that we had in the United States and Russia, the the Allied strategy and victory during World War II, uh, and the race to to cure polio as another example. He does this all the while while looking for inspiration to mitigate the cybersecurity threats we face by exploring how other complex problems in the world were solved from a historical basis, which is fascinating to me. So... Finally, you know, I think the book takes a critical look at today's technology supply chain, the human behavior around that, the role of government and corporate leaders and how they're supposed to work together in, in solving today's cyber conundrum. It's really cool because it looks into the future. It makes the case that action's needed, which isn't too hard, right? We know that action's needed. But what's really, really fascinating is it offers several promising technologies, some policies. It gets into some practices that he thinks might make a cybersecurity moonshot successful, right? There's not too many people out there offering really, uh, you know, cool, viable solutions, right? So, I mean, this is all going on in this space and, and the lack of offered solutions that, that we have right here today in, in this industry. So that's what makes the book, in my mind, uh, a must-read. Peter Cronus, the CISO of Turner, coming up on the second and third segments of the show. So before we get into all that, it seems that on March 15th, the United States announced sanctions against the Russian government for numerous nefarious cyber actions the Russians and their fleet of perverse hackers have taken against the United States and other countries as well. So these, some of these high-level details were outlined in a March 15th article in Wired magazine written by Andy Greenberg. But, you know, if you get a chance, check it out. I think it was basically reported on by every major news media in the United States. But I'd like to give out the, the, the cyber guys the shout-out when we get a chance. So now many around the United States have been waiting for this. And I see it on Twitter all the time, you know, even clamoring for the United States to take some action against the Russian government, who just seems emboldened to interfere with the internal matters of not only the United States, but other nations that they consider their adversaries as well. And I would imagine every American would agree, every American, I would imagine, 
that interference, especially in our elections by the Russian government, is completely unacceptable. And we need to do everything that we can to ensure that that doesn't happen again. So the sanctions issued by the Department of Treasury reportedly has some teeth. That's what, that's what they're saying. So the sanctions were launched against 19 individuals. These were both private citizens, and they were both public officials in those 19, and five Russian organizations. So over a dozen of the individuals named in the sanctions were Russians named in the recent indictments announced by special counsel Robert Mueller as part of his special investigation to determine if there was any collusion between the Trump administration and the Russian government to influence the last presidential election. Of course, everyone knows no such collusion has yet to be announced by the Mueller team, and the investigation continues. But they did announce these indictments against these Russians for interfering with our presidential election. So it's my opinion, look, these Russians, they're acting with the purpose to promote a tumultuous environment in the United States. They're doing this by escalating the culture war that's going on here. They know there's a culture war going on here. They're trying to escalate that as much as they possibly can. The culture war between those with different ideologies that will introduce chaos, turmoil, even anarchy into the United States, into our systems. And this is all being done through the cyber realm. And, and folks, this is completely unacceptable to me. Unacceptable, and it should be unacceptable to you, and I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is with all of our listeners out there. This is a no-brainer. This is not a, not just a non-political issue. I don't, no one, and I mean no one, wants the Russians launching cyber attacks against the United States to influence public opinion or cause unruliness or pandemonium in this country. The indictments on these 13 Russians concluded that this so-called Internet Research Agency had a, quote, strategic goal to sow discord in the U.S. political system, including the election. And if, if you follow this, folks, you know that the indictments also said that there weren't any American citizens who knowingly participated in this legal activity, and the conduct charged the indictments didn't alter the outcome of the 2016 election. But that doesn't matter, folks. That doesn't matter. This is serious. It doesn't matter that they weren't successful in, 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 in altering the election. I don't think that's what they wanted to do to begin with. This is serious stuff, folks. And if this continues to happen, more repercussions should, and more sanctions should be pursued against the Russian government. So, and as if that wasn't enough, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI issued a joint alert last week saying that, quote-unquote, Russian government cyber actors have been targeting U.S. critical infrastructure sectors, including energy, nuclear, and commercial facilities, since at least March of 2016. And according to an NPR report a couple of days ago, Joel Brenner, the head of counterintelligence under the Director of National Intelligence in the Obama administration, told NPR, quote, they were not simply looking around that system and reconnoitering it. He continued, they were placing the tools that they would have to place in order to turn off the power. That's a serious vulnerability for us, and we're not anywhere near ready to deal with it, end of quote. So... Now, folks, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to some of you. If you're in the cybersecurity business, you're in the sock every day, you're seeing, the, you're seeing the challenges that we face, you know the threats that are out there, right? But to my listeners out there who are not in cybersecurity business every day, I'm sure they're sitting there right now saying to themselves, wait a minute, Ritas, you're telling me that the Russians are in our electrical grids? They're in our SCADA systems? I mean, some dude in Moscow can turn off the power in my house? or in specific, in this case, referenced by DHS, had the power at one point to shut off the lights in my house? I mean, turn off the heat and the air conditioning? Prevent me from keeping food from spoiling? Turning off the TV and Internet to my home? Almost completely shutting down any outside communication I had to the outside world? i got to tell you, folks, we're not prepared for that. I mean, we had a hurricane hit up here on the East Coast, Hurricane Sandy, and we lost power throughout the whole tri-state area. And, and there were no generators at the stores. The gas stations didn't have gas. They ran out of gas. You, you couldn't even buy a gas can at the store. Anywhere. And there was violence breaking out at the gas stations within 48 hours of losing power. I mean, I saw it. Police departments had to dispatch their entire crew to all the gas stations in town to prevent rioting. I mean, Mr. Brenner's right, folks. He's right when he says that we're not ready for this sort of thing. And what's more, we have to let the Russians know that this sort of thing 
is unacceptable to us. I mean, this type of behavior is completely unacceptable. And as I, as I speak about it, you know, it just reminds me of what we talked about last week on the show and regarding Kevin Mandia's comments on Kramer, that if we all got into an all-out cyber war with Russia and we launched every cyber weapon we had against them and they launched every cyber weapon they had against us, they would win. They would win, he said. And it's obvious to me, at least in some respect, from what I see publicly, that they know that, and it seems to have emboldened them. And maybe the private sector's inability or perceived inability in some cases to protect our critical infrastructure is having ramifications that we don't often think about. If you're in the private sector and you go to work every day for a private company as a cybersecurity professional, and you're not a government employee, but I can tell you, In the private sector, what you do every day means something. It means something. What you do means more than contributing to the stock value of a public company. Forget all those corporate lines. Okay, if you're a cybersecurity professional, you have a bigger calling. What you do every day is imperative to the national security of the United States. Read the papers. It's because of these threats that we face. What you do is essential to our long-term security and survival. And whether you know it or not, You have a greater and deeper sense of purpose with what you do every day. And every person in the cybersecurity community should be acting with a sense of urgency when we consider how we're going to do it. We've got to take a break. We'll be right back with more from the Chief Information Security Officer of Turner, Peter Cronus, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public. Listen for the Brand Ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, the Chief Information Security Officer of Turner, Peter Cronus. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. So I was reading your book, and I have a few questions about it. I mean, tell us about the cyber conundrum. What's the thesis of the book? Yeah, so look, when I started research for the book, I really started off by trying to look at the state of cybersecurity today. What are the net benefits? What are the challenges? And, and where do we go from here, right? I mean, the reality is, the thesis of the book is really saying uh, we need a comprehensive and dramatic uh, strategy to address the cybersecurity challenges we have today. And uh, they're so dramatic, it's a moonshot initiative. 
more than it is just a, a regular uh, initiative or effort. And so the book really focuses on what needs to change. What, what is the world uh, as we see it today? And how does it need to change uh, to help us not manage cybersecurity risk, but actually fix cybersecurity risk in the future? Right. So, I mean, cybersecurity is full of change, as we know, transformational change happening all over the place. You talk about the need for a moonshot in cybersecurity. So, moonshots thrown around a lot today in conversations. What, what does a moonshot mean? Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's a moonshot for just about everything. Look, I, I think w- when you take a look at cybersecurity, um, the, 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 uh, the, the solutions for cybersecurity challenges we have today aren't security related. They're really behaviorally related. Uh, so we need to change fundamental behaviors in the tech ecosystem. And that won't be easy, right? And so, um, and, and it can't be decentralized. It needs to be centralized. So really what a moonshot is, is a centralized uh, uh, in this particular case, national, international strategy that needs to be designed and developed. And moonshots have very unique sets of criteria, and we explore them in the book. Um, they need to have uh, centralized uh, leadership. They need to have enlightened leadership. Uh, there needs to be a vanguard movement that uh, pushes uh, and promotes a groundswell that ultimately is harnessed to get things done. And I think when I took a look at some of the cybersecurity challenges, these, to solve this challenge, it can't be incremental. It needs to be comprehensive. And you can't have a comprehensive solution uh, in this particular scenario without a moonshot. So considering those fundamental characteristics that you just described of a moonshot, you know, how do they apply to cybersecurity? I think it's, it's interesting today, right? Because... It, it, Cybersecurity, the cybersecurity challenges we have today are a national security priority, right? You take a look at um, uh, how those threats have evolved. Um, and the challenge that we have with this particular national security priority, it's a threat to national security. It's a threat to our democracy. It's a threat to our individual liberties. And, and it's a threat to our individual digital identities. Um, and, and so today, cybersecurity strategy between the public and private sector is, is disjointed. And so what we need is a national strategy that aligns those two, right? When you look at most of the uh, uh, technical infrastructure uh, that makes up our, uh, or that supports our economy, it's in the private sector, right? And so what happens is you've got these private se- sector entities, these corporations, public and private uh, corporations that are um, trying to figure out and solve these problems on their own. Unfortunately, uh, the, uh, the challenges that are contributing uh, to poor cybersecurity and tech ecosystem are outside their individual influence. So when you talk about things like uh, speed to market for software, where speed to market over security is the norm today, you, need to, you can't address those types of challenges uh, without a fundamental national strategy. You're really relying upon individual contributors, companies that contribute to the tech ecosystem uh, to try to figure out how to address those in a comprehensive way on their own. And that's not typically what, what we need. Well, that's not how moonshots evolve. That's not how comprehensive problems get solved. So you mentioned the private sector uh, there for a second, and I often talk about cybersecurity in the private sector versus uh, the public sector. And the government. And, and so if cybersecurity is truly a great threat to the national security of the United States, why don't we see more action on the part of the federal government here? I mean, do you think the federal government is up to the task of doing what they need to do? Yeah, look, I've spent a tremendous amount of time as a member of the National Technology Security Coalition, spending time in Washington, talking to members of Congress, talking to members of the federal government. And um, I, I, I see a lot or hear a lot uh, of hesitation on the part of legislators in particular uh, to venture into this space. And when you don't have policymakers uh, that are all in, you're not going to end up having comprehensive solutions. So we need to do more to educate those legislators. We need to do more to bring uh, the public and private sector together. Um, and what the National Technology Security Coalition is doing is bringing uh, uh, private sector CISOs into the conversation and trying to help educate the federal government and, uh, and help uh, uh, drive some policy initiatives that have been, uh, uh, that have stalled in Congress. And so 
I think that effort is starting to gain momentum, and I think that's going to help. But really, we need more technology thought leaders uh, in in the federal government. We need them influencing and helping to influence uh, the legislative agenda, legislative priorities of Congress. And I think that'll help. Um, ultimately, uh, the next generation of leaders in the federal government are going to have to be more tech savvy. And uh, um, I think that will be a key factor to help us kind of overcome the reluctance uh, to wade into these waters right now. Do you think the, the federal government sees a lot of talent go out the door to the private sector because the private sector is sucking the talent out and, and just basically offering them more money? They target the more innovative and dynamic leadership in cybersecurity in the government, and then there's a retention problem. Do you, do you see that as a problem? I mean, do, I'm sure, it, yeah, it absolutely is. But the passionate people that I'm talking to are in it because they know they can make a difference. Right. So imagine how much more uh, powerful they can be, how, uh, how much better they'll be at retention if people start to see uh, this evolve in a way where progress is being made. I think it'll help with their retention. Certainly not a silver bullet there, though. Right, right. And one of the key behaviors your book says we need to change is the way we develop software and software-enabled devices. It's something that we talk about a lot, you know, security from the ground up, uh, right out of the gate from the beginning. And so, specifically, how does that need to change to improve security in your mind? Yeah, look, the book goes far to try not to to point fingers on any particular company because here's the challenge as technologists. We've all contributed. We've all written buggy code. Human beings haven't figured out how to write uh, a software that's free of uh, security vulnerabilities and uh, free of performance vulnerabilities. We just haven't figured that out yet, right? And so part of the moonshot is to try to address that problem in a more comprehensive way Um, and and really baking security into uh, the speed-to-market paradigm that we have right now. Um, It's not there today. So, you know, the book explores a couple of different concepts. one, uh, we need to make uh, security a, a, a better or higher priority, not just in the way we develop operating systems, but any uh, technology or internet-enabled device. So IoT devices are far outweigh today uh, the number of laptops, desktops, the number of uh, uh, mobile smartphones that are out there, uh, tablets. Uh, IoT devices have already uh, outnumbered those. However, um, you look at security, it's really not baked in those IoT devices. And those IoT devices uh, can be platforms for large platforms uh, to attack other systems if they're compromised, right, and become part of botnets, or can contribute to privacy or security issues for the individuals who own them. And so how do you address all those things in a fundamental way? Well, the book explores uh, underwriters' laboratories, for example, and they took take a look at uh, how Underwriters Laboratories helped as a public-private partnership um, uh, develop standards and fold um, uh, testing and best practices into the way electronics were manufactured. And you, you think about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, electricity was starting to make its way into people's homes. Uh, they weren't the, the devices that were plugged in a wall weren't safe. Uh, and Underwriters Laboratories helped create a foundation of safety and security uh, in, in such a way that we don't even think about it today. When we plug a lamp into the wall, it works and it's, it's generally safe uh, and doesn't contribute uh, um, uh, to safety and security issues the way they did when they were first being manufactured. And so uh, if you're a retailer, you, you, you work to make sure that uh, the electronics have that underwriter seal on them. If you flip over just about any electronic device, uh, you'll see the UL mark on it. Um, and that's a great success story. Um, you also see people, uh, uh, the Cyber ITIL group is, is working on standards to test uh, software before it makes it out to the marketplace um, and make those uh, very transparent uh, to buyers. So imagine a world where um, you have retailers and distributors making sure that software and services that they uh, sell are safe and secure uh, before they make it to the marketplace. And imagine a world where uh, people are better at writing more secure code. Uh, imagine a world where uh, the policies, uh, government policies, laws, legislation, create incentives for better cybersecurity for those manufacturers. And imagine a world where companies are buying 
uh, and looking for a software, giving preference to software and services that are uh, tested uh, and uh, meet a minimum uh, security standard. That's a that's the world that we need to be moving toward. And that's again not going to happen on its own. Uh, the market will drive some of this, but it's really we need a comprehensive strategy to align all those different uh, players, all those different stakeholders, in a way that promotes uh, rapid development of uh, uh, better software development practices. You know, you mentioned the strategy, and, and, and certainly this is something I've mentioned before about we need a, a, a better global aligned strategy here, not only in the United States, but in our, in our partners around the world too, in cybersecurity. But you mentioned incentives, and we talk about this a lot as far as building out security uh, as, a, as part of the culture in, in corporate enterprises. How can we create incentives in the marketplace to drive better security from development to implementation? Yeah, look, um, when you take a look at how policy um, can uh, create incentives and disincentives in the marketplace, it became clear you need both. You can't just give people advantages and no penalties because unfortunately that doesn't work, right? And so the book explores that a little bit. And so here's a couple of ideas or suggestions. Again, the cyber conundrum uh, really presents a, a recipe for what the cybersecurity moonshot could look like. The final recipe is really going to need to depend uh, on a broader uh, collection of you know thought leaders coming together and put together a strategy. But um, from think about it from this incentive. Imagine as a corporate buyer, I have the choice uh, of purchasing uh, uh, two products. One which has uh, security baked into it and has been that security uh, is built to a certain standard that's accepted by the global marketplace, right? Uh, and I have a choice between doing that with one that does and one that doesn't. Um, the, the, the product that does have that security baked into it has a market advantage. And so if we're able to develop a, a system or standard or solution uh, in the individual marketplaces, I, I think what we can do is start moving the market uh, if there's uh, a tangible benefit, right? So if I'm, as a corporate buyer, start moving in that direction, uh, then I'm going to move the industry. If enough of people like me do that, uh, enough of companies like mine do that, then uh, we're going to start to create a market incentive. Um, imagine if we had this uh, huge market kind of groundswell pushing uh, vendors collectively toward better security, and then there's uh, policy and legislation in place that gives companies either some sort of liability protection if they're able to demonstrate uh, an individual that they mean individual security standards uh, and maybe some sort of uh, a liability incentive or protection uh, that could move that would save uh, private industry billions of dollars uh, in insurance costs and so search so create this economic and market incentive to push companies in the right direction is that enough to move the industry I don't know but I think we need to have some sort of uh, uh, market and policy approach that pushes companies and in, in the right direction. And then, look, there might be uh, penalties uh, that need to be added to that. I think you can't start that discussion with penalties because, um, you know, I think uh, people on Capitol Hill will, will get inundated, uh, you know, with lobbyists arguing against any, any motion. So I think if we start with how we create uh, incentives to move the market, then later on down the line we can consider what penalties might be for folks who aren't engaged or involved in, in that market shift. So many people out there, especially technologists, say that humans are the weakest link in cybersecurity. Do, do you believe this? I'm interested to know. Do you believe this is true? And, and if so, like, how do we fix it? Yeah, I, look, I think there are a lot of smart people out there um, uh, who are trying to solve this problem. The truth is that, um, you know, it's certainly an element of it. And, and here's the deal. Um, you have uh, 2 billion, roughly 2 billion smartphones out there in the market, and Almost no one has to take training to use. They're so intuitive. Yet, um, the security uh, to make, well, the security needed, the amount of knowledge needed to help protect uh, consumers' identities or help uh, protect the, uh, the apps that are running on those devices is it's just uh, crazy. I, I wrote a guide and, uh, uh, and made it public for folks to just enable uh, multi-factor authentication on the apps running on their smartphone uh, 
and it was 23 pages. I'm not a verbose writer. Um, it, it was just so complicated to uh, teach people all the different uh, processes they have to follow that it makes, uh, you know, nobody's going to use that 23-page guide. Uh, they might want to do it, but it just takes so much time and energy. So ultimately, designing our products and services with security in mind, we have to make security easy uh, for the consumer. Um, and we have to get beyond the password, right? If we're going to lock down uh, digital accounts, we have to get beyond the password because people have too many uh, digital profiles out there uh, to remember all of the different passwords they have uh, to keep them safe. Uh, and so we have to make security easy for people, uh, and that will help reduce the likelihood that they're contributing knowingly or unknowingly um, to poor information security in the tech landscape. So a quick question before we go to break. I, you know, the, the privacy versus security discussion just is, is just continuing to rage on, and it comes, you know, it goes up and down and up and down, and, and a lot of people are, are really – they want to, they want to do something about obviously the security piece of this, but they don't want to, you know, give away the privacy rights that Americans enjoy either. Right. So can you weigh on this? I mean, you're in the C-suite, you know, the issues, can you weigh on this from privacy versus security debate and how do we balance the two? Yeah, look, uh, I think when you take a look at um, the digital ecosystem today, there is, there is a debate going on today between privacy advocates and security advocates. And, You'd think they'd be aligned, but unfortunately, I, I don't think they are. So if you look at the iPhone encryption debate, you, you have a lot of the privacy advocates out there that uh, say, look, many of these technologies, we, we, can't, um, we can't create uh, tech, tech uh, capabilities that are abuse, abusive by design. Uh, that means that, hey, look, we don't trust... Uh, that the government will protect its private citizens. So what we have to do is create these foolproof solutions for encryption uh, that don't allow people to reverse engineer them and get to data. Uh, and then you have government uh, advocates that are saying, look, um, hey, a real crime is being committed or has been committed. There are people's lives at stake. I need to be able to decrypt what's going on at that iPhone in order to be able to crack this case. Um, you know, the same thing's going on with TLS 1.2 versus 1.3 standard. The IETF is trying to create a new standard for encryption around TLS that makes it completely uh, difficult or if not impossible uh, to crack. And, you know, privacy folks say we cannot uh, allow encryption to be abused by design. We can't provide backdoors. And then you have security people saying, hey, look, I need to take a look at some of the traffic coming out of my corporate network. And I need to be able to uh, take my private key, uh, decrypt the traffic, and, and see what's inside. Um, because it could be the keys to my kingdom, could be my intellectual property, it could be my customer data, and I don't want to let that out of my network without knowing. And so there's this huge uh, conflict between those two organizations. Um, and right now, they don't seem to be converging on a solution. So there has to be balance in order for it to be uh, uh, in order for us to be able to operate, uh, protect people, and also operate uh, our company securely. All right, Pete, we're going to stop right there for a short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from the Chief Information Security Officer of Turner, Peter Cronus, after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In your business, are you on top of your PR game? PR is what tells your story. Whether it's the business itself, key people in your business, or showing your best face to the public, listen for the brand ambassadors. Host Merritt Hamilton Allen with co-host Gary Potterfield will discuss effective presentation ideas, building your personal brand, risk management, crisis communication, and more. Focus your business goals and PR resources. Listen live Fridays at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, 
IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjog All at CIOTalkNetwork.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our guest, Chief Information Security Officer of one of the largest media companies in the world at Turner. Peter Cronus. So, so Pete, we, we talked about your book in the first segment of the show and, and some of the key themes of the book. And I want to shift gears now and talk about your day job for this segment of the show. So, you've been the CISO at Turner for just over two years, I believe. And so, how is being the CISO at a media company different than any other CISO jobs you've had before? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I got here, I think, at just the right time. You know, uh, Sony happened. Uh, it baked in the media industry realized that it was a you know kind of a target, and um, you know wh- where they had been focusing on say perhaps availability, they realized they had to also focus on security uh, as part of their tech strategy uh, to protect themselves. And so again, I got here at the right time. Uh, uh, the leadership here uh, at Turner has been incredibly supportive and has uh, helped us uh, really make a. Uh, a new uh, program that I think is uh, is focused on on, on helping address those uh, new threats. So when people think uh, media companies and they, they think information security right away, they, a lot of people do think of the Sony attack. So just keeping the Sony attack in mind, what types of threats are, are you seeing in the media landscape? Yeah, so like in the past, you know, you hear a lot about data breaches, you hear a lot about compromises focused on intellectual property. Sony wasn't the first, but it helped. It was probably the most high, high profile smoking hole attack. And, and that smoking hole attack is really the type of attack that's meant to destroy and, and to interrupt the operations of a company. And so, uh, again, uh, Aramco, uh, South Korean government, uh, were, were targets of uh, smoking hole attacks before Sony, but Sony really kind of brought it to the uh, forefront of, uh, you know, uh, risk management uh, thought, uh, and, and the industry needed a strategy to deal with that. Post-Sony, TV5 Mond, which happened, uh, it's a French broadcaster, a couple of years ago, they got hacked by the Russians, and uh, they were knocked off the air, uh, and, and their digital sites were taken down, um, and that was an even greater wake-up call. It's a lesser-known attack, but um, it was what we believe was a proof-of-concept attack to see how you could knock off a broadcaster if need be. So imagine a world where you're in geopolitical conflict with an adversary, and they're able to uh, uh, take out legitimate news sources, uh, and uh, all that's left is uh, fake news disseminating. So you've got a country in crisis. First thing people do is turn to media to find out what's going on and imagine that's not there. And the inside the echo chamber, the only thing that's available is uh, propaganda. Uh, it would cause mass confusion. It would cause uh, a tremendous disruption, especially in a society like ours that really depends on the free flow of information to operate. So I want to get into that a little bit deeper about the importance of media in, in the United States. And, but before I do that, I got, I got to ask, in the world of Netflix and YouTube and all other kinds of competition that's emerging uh, for traditional broadcasters, how do the traditional broadcasters compete in this culture, in this world? And then what's the role of technology and security as a business enabler 
in those new strategies and you're very much involved in that. So how, how does that work and what's the role there? Yeah, so look, the industry has to evolve and change because the preferences of consumers have changed, right? They have more options. They have more things they can watch. And so what we find is, you know, people are actually spending more time viewing uh, video content, but they're not necessarily viewing that content uh, on TV. They're going online and viewing it. And so, look, uh, we're in the middle of a huge disruption in our industry, uh, and and technology is really going to play a role uh, uh, as a, traditional broadcasters evolve and go direct to consumer, right? And you're, you're seeing consumer choice uh, being an important component of where people spend their time. If I, could, if I have control to watch the type of content that I want that's relevant to me anytime, um, that, that's where I'm going to spend my time and energy, right? So what you're seeing is consumers moving to Netflix and YouTube for binge watching. Uh, those platforms offer viewers uh, choice. And so what Turner is doing is uh, through its Reimagine TV initiative is investing heavily in technology to bring choice back to the consumer. And so we have 80% of the country uh, in any given month comes to one of our uh, uh, broadcast stations or comes to one of our online websites like CNN or Cartoon Network or Adult Swim. That's pretty powerful. Um, and so in order to stay as relevant as we are today, we need to be able to make sure that we're able to offer uh, consumers uh, choice, uh, whether it's through a Netflix-like experience on uh, TV or through coming directly to one of our websites and being able to pull up the show they want to watch uh, when they want to watch it. The other important element of that is um, we need to be able to provide targeted relevant advertising to consumers. How often do you go and watch a TV station or TV program and you fast forward through the commercials because they're just not relevant to you? Uh, we're also offering uh, or, or investing in technology that will allow us to uh, present relevant ads to consumers in new and unique ways. And I think that's the, uh, you know, Turner's really leading the technology evolution and transformation. And uh, we're excited to see, uh, to bring that actually to market uh, very soon. So we touched on it before, and I want to ask you this, and I'm very interested in your answer. So, so media companies are not considered critical infrastructure. And I think, you know, sometimes this could be a problem, could not be a problem. It depends on what the situation is. But do you think that that hampers your ability to do your job? I mean, do you think that this non-designation may need to change? Yeah, look, I, I think um, – I think what was considered critical infrastructure a few years ago has probably broadened significantly. Um, whether that means we need to be part of that program or not, I, I don't quite know the answer to that yet. What I do know is is that threats to companies like media, media is not the only uh, industry that's probably at high risk. Um, you know, we need to do a better job of, of aligning uh, uh, our private a company strategy with a, a broader information security vision, right? So it's not just media companies and uh, power, uh, power companies and other utilities that'll be the targets. It'll be much broader than that in the event of a, um, of a uh, conflict with uh, some of these major nation states. So I think the thinking needs to evolve. I'm not sure I, I know the answer, uh, what it should be, but I, I know it needs to evolve beyond uh, uh, what used to be considered the, or what currently is considered critical infrastructure. It's got to evolve. Uh, and that includes things like information sharing, uh, tighter, tighter coordination and collaboration amongst industry and government. Uh, doesn't mean we want to invite the government into our networks, but we need to have uh, uh, tighter and more uh, uh, consistent information sharing. Um, and we need to focus on not just defending our critical infrastructure, but helping to defend uh, other areas that are outside critical infrastructure. And I don't think there's a strategy for that yet. So you were talking about the importance of the news. And I know that a lot of people, even people in the government right away, some of the easiest way to get information the quickest is just really just turn on, turn on the news. And I turn our own CNN. And a lot of this news today is, is happening, you know, on, in real time. Most of the time you're seeing things in real time as they're actually happening and they're occurring. So what are the types of cybersecurity challenges that you need to consider to support a 24-hour news organization that's, that, that are, it's very unique in the media? And I don't think people quite realize what a tremendous responsibility that really is. 
you know, I'll tell you what, I didn't fully appreciate it. I am a lifelong news junkie. Uh, and I didn't really appreciate it when I started this job. On my first week, there was a terrorist attack in Europe. And uh, I own the business continuity program as well. And so a lot of our business continuity uh, and crisis management processes went into full swing uh, because we had a, you know, it wasn't, we weren't the target, but we were certainly uh, wanted to make sure that our employees were safe. And while we were trying to make sure our employees were safe, we were also sending employees into harm's way, right? So you think about this, uh, you have, uh, you know, journalists in war zones, you have journalists in countries that aren't friendly uh, to journalists. You have uh, 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 people that are out there today who kidnap journalists because uh, um, they want to use them for leverage. And so it's a very, you know, kind of dangerous business to be in. And the cyber component is, is a key and critical uh, uh, challenge, uh, more so than it ever has. And so we work very closely with folks at CNN. Uh, we, we need to make sure that when they're presented with sensitive information that it's safe and secure. We need to make sure that the communications uh, between those journalists, no matter where they are in the world, are safe and secure. We need to make sure that um, um, that the data uh, that we're entrusted with by our sources is safe and secure, and we need to protect those sources. So those are all pretty pretty unique and um, and very important to us. Well, Pete, we're out of time, but it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. I hope you come back. George, thanks so much. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you. And folks, hey, look, if you get a chance, you can go to Amazon and uh, look up The Cyber Conundrum by Peter Cronus. It's a great read. You'll really enjoy it. So uh, we've run out of time, folks. I, before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.